Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Joining us for the first time today, we have been going for two months through a series entitled Kindness 24-7. We have gotten a couple more testimonies in. One of you uh, have gone and gotten books for the Isaiah 127 house, 117 house. I don't know what 127 is. I'd have to look that up. Isaiah 117 house. Uh, thank you for doing that and the testimony of bringing your grandchild into that to be able to help get those books ready. And I see you right there. There you are. Thank you, Michelle. Um, uh, but several of you I know have taken kindness cards off. Ever, you know, some of you are risky. Uh, you've we don't have any more of the envelopes, the mystery kindnesses, and so. Um, you guys really want to step right out there and, and jump into it with both feet, which is good, because the kindness ones that we had in the envelopes were a step or two deeper and more commitment to doing a kind act. And, uh, and let me tell you, we had ministers of the Church of God Ministries here on, on Friday. Was it Saturday? Friday, because today is Sunday. Okay, my weekend's all messed up because... Friday, all day, in this space and in the Life Center, we had all the licensed and ordained ministers, or at least most of them, here for our annual business meeting of the Church of God Ministries, uh, what we call our General Assembly of Ministers for Western Pennsylvania. And so about 150 of us, 100 to 150 of us here kind of uh, talking about the business of the church and what we're doing in ministry in the Church of God in Western PA, and they were intrigued by the kindness boards. Many of them said, so tell me about this. What are you guys doing? I'm like, well, the charge has been or the challenge has been for families or individuals to take those kindness cards and and go and do a kindness once a week, to take one of those each week and to pour out of yourself and into the life of another, whether anonymously or outwardly, to do that. And then we've asked you to send us your testimonies of how that experience went, anonymously, or you could put your name on it. And it's actually been going really well. I'm hearing great stories and great testimonies, so thank you for being willing to do that. Listen, those boards are going to be up for a couple more weeks, this week and next week, through the end of the series, but that doesn't mean you have to stop being kind. This was just a springboard into a way of learning to let that be a natural flow out of who you are. So today, here's my challenge for you. If you go through a drive through anytime this week, Today or this week, pay for the person's meal behind you in line. Okay? Do that. Anytime this week you go through a drive-thru, pay for the person's meal behind you and tell the person at the window, just say, some things in life are free, including God's love. I wish you a blessed day. All right? You don't have to do that. I'm not your boss, but it's just a challenge. Try it out. Our sermon today, or our message for today, is entitled Straight and Tall. And we come to a passage in Luke's Gospel in chapter 13. You can go ahead and turn there anytime you want to. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. But I want to talk to you today about outrage. How many of you get outraged? How many of you should get outraged? <laughs> what do you get outraged over, and is it worth getting outraged over? There's the tougher question, right? How many of you remember a few years ago, Starbucks came out with solid red cups for the holidays? How many of the Christians got outraged over that? They're taking Jesus out of Christmas. Well, there was a huge buzz on, buzz on social media. There was all of this stuff going on, and I kind of got snagged into it a little bit. I'm like, I get, became indignant. How dare they take Christmas off of their cups? And then I came across this actual fact that I want to read to you today. 
In his book, Christians in the Age of Outrage, Ed Stetzer unpacks the legalistic tendencies of Christians within the American church to be offended about things that during his 15, uh, things that, I'm sorry, let me read that again. Ed Stetzer unpacks the legalistic tendencies of Christians within the American church to be offended about things, period. But here's the, here's the point. Do we get offended about those things that we should, or do we find ourselves getting sucked into the offense or offenses that the world says we should be offended about and we get our feathers all ruffled up. Listen to what he writes. During his 15 minutes of fame, a man by the name of Joshua, and I'm going to butcher his last name, it's F-E-U-E-R-S-T-E-I-N. So Feuerstein, I would pronounce it, Joshua Feuerstein, started the 2015 Starbucks Red Cup controversy. Soon, people were saying that Christians were upset. Though I saw only one person, Joshua Feuerstein, truly the one who was outraged. He posted a Facebook message saying, Starbucks, and then all caps, removed Christmas, lower caps, from their cups because they hate Jesus. That was his statement. He also tagged media to, to attract attention, CBS, NBC, ABC, all the conglomerates across the United States, newspapers. He tagged all of them to attract attention. And without fail, the outrage cycle began. Of course, Starbucks denied the accusation, assured worried Christians everywhere they were welcome to say Merry Christmas to their heart's content and insisted that the company did not hate Christmas. Can you imagine the conversation in the Starbucks boardroom? Did they say, oh, those Christians are fair-minded, gracious, and thoughtful? Probably not during that season. The reality was that Feuerstein tried to use Christian outrage to raise his platform and his status and to go viral. The news and opinion website, and I usually don't go to Vox because it's truly hard left leaning and all that, but listen to what Vox explained. They said, Feuerstein's new Starbucks outrage video might be the biggest of his social media career. It's a rant stemming from conservative, a conservative Christian belief that there is a war on Christmas and that each year during the holidays, Christians are persecuted by companies. The irony of all of this is, listen, I get sucked into this every year too. With the public schools, you're not allowed to have a Christmas pageant, blah, 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 blah. And I get the frustration with that. But here's the enemy's tactic. Can I just tell you, one of the things the enemy does to get the church off track with the gospel is to get us focused on these things that don't amount to a hill of beans in the grand scheme of eternity, so we're fighting the wrong battles? So the reality is, that what, this is what was happening then. It took one person with one social media video with a feigned outrage over something that wasn't even happening to get many of us stirred up and into a tizzy. Of course, it would be interesting and maybe even outrageous if all of that were true that he was posting. But Vox goes on to write, Feuerstein's most blatant untruth and the reason for all the current furor about the 2015 Red Cup is the implication that Starbucks at one time actually printed the word Christmas on its holiday cups and is now being stifled or stifling itself from doing so. In the past six years prior to 2015, which doesn't excuse me the past six years starbucks which does not identify itself as a christian company did you know that they didn't identify themselves as a christian company has never put the words merry christmas on its cuffs Instead, it's used wintry and vaguely holiday-esque imagery and language, including ornaments that say things like joy or hope or snowman or holly. They've never come out and said, hey, we're Christian and we're putting Merry Christmas on all of our stuff. 
So why should we expect them to in the first place, even as a non-Christian company? What do we get outraged over? Outrage is all the rage in our current cultural climate. It's not gotten better since 2015. What has happened to us? What's happened since 2015? Does anybody remember what's happened? Well, I don't, let's just say since 2019. Has anything happened? We've gotten outraged over wearing masks. We've gotten outraged over not wearing masks. We've gotten outraged over shots or not getting shots. We have become so much more polarized because the enemy's like, oh, I can use this to my advantage. And he's gotten our focus off Christ and put it squarely on other things that will not last forever. Now, this doesn't mean the church should not fight the right battles in the right ways at the right times. Do not hear what I'm not saying. Listen to what I am saying. We can become outraged over any number of things. But we need to be outraged over the things that outrage God. And you say, well, where, how do I know what outrages God? Read the Bible. I'm serious. You've got to find what's in the Scripture to know what really ticks God off. And do you know what that is? It's sin. Well, what is sin? Sin are those things that God says not to do or to do that we don't do. Well, what is that? Again, it's in there. None of us stand without excuse. We live in the freest country. You may not believe that, but we still live in the freest country in the world. Many of us have Bibles to boot. We could probably fill the boot of our car with the Bibles we have in our home. But many of us don't know what it says. And so when we get outraged, we get outraged over this supposed thing that we should be outraged over, but may not even connect at all with Scripture. And so what does God get outraged over? So here's where we get to our passage today in Luke chapter 13. And it's about healing and miracles, but it's also about outrage. And here's what I want to start with. Luke chapter 13 starting with verse 10. One Sabbath day, Jesus was teaching in a synagogue. Often Jesus would go to synagogues in whatever towns he was ministering and ministering in or traveling in, and he would teach as a guest teacher. Jesus would have typically worn a rabbi's natural garb, okay? So he would have stood out in a crowd. He would have looked like a rabbi, okay? talked and walked and taught like a rabbi. So when he came into a town, it was often the honor of the synagogue leader to offer to a traveling rabbi an opportunity to speak in the synagogue. And so Jesus took the advantage of opportunities like that. So he's teaching in this particular synagogue on this day. And guess what happens? While he's teaching, now the synagogue, and many of them are still like this today, a synagogue would be like a room like this but much smaller in Jesus' day. And they would have two to three rows around the outer perimeter of the side walls and the back wall. Sometimes they would have more, depending on how large the community of Jewish faith was in that community, that had more rows. But they would all be kind of facing in toward each other, not facing the stage like you are today, okay? At the head of the synagogue would be a seat and a large stone or wooden table. The table was to roll the scroll out, whatever scroll they were reading from in the Old Testament that day. And the seat was called the Moses seat. Okay? Why do they call it the Moses seat? Because they were teaching from the law of Moses. So anyone who sat in that seat had the authority of the text and was called to comment on the text after its reading, similar to our day and age where we take a text like Luke 13. I'm expounding on it and giving you commentary on it today. So he would unroll the scroll and lay it out there. So Jesus, when you taught, when a rabbi taught in the synagogue, they would, and I got, I've gotten scolded for this before, why do you bring a chair? 
Because sometimes I get tired. I'm getting older, you know. But here, it was customary for the synagogue teacher or rabbi to sit in the Moses seat. After he had read the word on the scroll, he would sit. And then he would expound on the passage to those who were gathered in the synagogue that day. I just want to set the stage and give you the picture of what this must have looked like on that day. Now, what we are told next is that while Jesus is sitting and teaching and expounding in the synagogue on whatever passage he was reading from that day, he saw a woman who had been crippled by an evil spirit. My guess is she had either just come in because how would he, he might have noticed her sitting and hunched over, but this is what we're going to get to next. She had been bent double for 18 years and was unable to stand up straight. So you picture a woman like this, okay? Have you seen people that have such osteoporosis or some uh, type of, of problem with the spine that they cannot stand up straight. There was a lady who I just found out passed away not too long ago from the from the community of faith I helped to pastor in Ohio, and she um, she was bent over like from from the shoulders down. She couldn't lift her, and so she would try to do this a lot, and it always broke my heart. She was one of the sweetest ladies uh, uh, that I that I had met, but she was she was bent doubled over as well and so many of you may have an idea what that looks like because you know people that can't stand straight up so this was what Jesus saw he saw this woman crippled by an evil spirit or a demon depending on the version you're using and why does he say that let's talk about that for just a split second this is not the content or context of my message but here's a little side note or a footnote at the bottom of the page can I ask you, where does disease and crippled or handicapped come from? Did God create disease? Did he create uh, deformities? No. So what happens in Genesis 3 when sin enters the world through Adam and Eve's disobedience? Do you know what goes wrong? Not just the relational aspect of humans to God, but also the relational aspect among all humans. And then what else? The relational aspect within all of creation, between all creatures of the earth. Something happens. What did God tell them would happen if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? You'll die. What is death? Have you ever thought about that? So death is the process by which the body degrades. It may not be instantaneous. Sometimes people can have chronic illnesses that last for years, but ultimately become their demise, right? Without the living presence of God Almighty, the tree of life, if you will, with him not intimately there, what happens to the cellular matter, to everything in a person's being? Separated from the author of life, what happens? Huh? Life begins to degrade over time. The disease enters the world. So who is the one to blame for all the corruption? The enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, who did a good job at deceiving Eve, and Eve who handed the fruit also to her husband. There is this cycle of deficiency that happens. A cycle of pain and disease that enters the world. So she now has an evil spirit. Let's be honest. Is not all disease evil? Or does it all not find its root in evil? Are you guys with me? Okay. So who is the author of life that can fix all of that? God himself, the author of all life. So here we are. He sees this woman while he's teaching from the Moses seat. She'd been doubled over for 18 years and was unable to stand up straight. And so when he saw her, he called her over and said, now keep in, keep, this would be like us sitting in, a, in, in the sanctuary today. Jesus sitting on the Moses seat teaching, and then he stops. And everybody's like, 
What's going on? Because he sees this woman. We aren't told that he calls her by name. But he calls her over to him. He says, hey, yeah, yeah, you, uh, come here. This is in the middle of service. And he says, dear woman, you are healed of your sickness. And then he touched her. And with the touch, she instantly could stand straight. And what is it said that she does? Oh, how she praised God. She praised God. But here's where the outrage comes into play. Because the leader of the synagogue who oversees who's going to speak that day, where the scrolls are, making sure the scrolls are in order and that the right one comes out for the reading of the day, make sure everybody does what they're needing to do on the day of the synagogue teaching on the Sabbath. Verse 14, the synagogue, the leader in charge of the synagogue was indignant that Jesus had healed her on the Sabbath. There are six days of the week for working, he said to the crowd. This is called being passive-aggressive. If you're being aggressive, you're speaking directly to the person. He's incensed that Jesus healed a woman on the Sabbath in the synagogue. But then he's like, um, <coughs> listen up, everyone. And hear me very clearly. I'm sure he spoke in a British accent. There are six days of the week for working. Come on those days to be healed and not on the Sabbath. Do you hear what he's saying to Jesus, to the woman, and to the rest of the crowd? I don't care how sick you are on the Sabbath, you wait till the next day. I don't care how bad it is for you. You've been holding out long enough. You can hold out for one more day. You see what we call this is legalism. But Jesus, or the Lord, replied, You hypocrites! Okay, Jesus is still sitting in the seat. He calls her to him. He says, Woman! You are healed of your sickness. He reaches over, touches her instantly. She stands up as if she's never been bent over before. She says, praise my God. And the synagogue leader says, uh-uh, not on my watch. This ain't going to happen. Listen, y'all. What you just saw happen ain't going to happen no more. Cut it out. Bring it on the other six days, but not on today. You hypocrites! Each of you works on the Sabbath day. Don't you untie your ox or your donkey from its stall on the Sabbath and lead it out for water? This dear woman, a daughter of Abraham, has been held in bondage by Satan for 18 years. Isn't it right that she be released even on the Sabbath? It says this shamed his enemies. But all the people rejoiced at the wonderful things he did. You see... The religious leaders whose way of life was being challenged because they were working by man-made rules rather than God-made rules were calling into question the teaching of Jesus, but the people were seeing through all the religious nonsense and the legalism, and they're seeing a man who claims to be something more than just a rabbi healing and breathing life into people who have for so long been broken by the enemy's attacks of disease and sickness. And this shamed his enemies. 
Let me tell you one thing that is not a part of this message today, and that is when you do the right things, regardless of what everybody else is doing, it's going to shame those who see you doing it who are doing the wrong things. That is not because you are trying to lord it over them or make them look bad, but when you do the right things, when you live in the right ways, in a humble fashion, everybody else is going to see that, and they will accuse you just like the religious leaders accused Jesus. You will be accused for doing something wrong when you are doing something right, when you are perfectly aligned with God's purposes for your life. This is why it's hard to be a believer in Christ in the world today or in any other time period because God's people get persecuted when they're truly living out His purposes in their lives. They get called names. They get put in jail. They get persecuted and sometimes martyred for their faith. Here's the key point, and it's this. Kindness, true kindness, knows no bounds. True kindness is kind every day of the week, not just on certain days of the week, not just in certain situations, but in all situations. So what do we take away from this passage? The first one we notice about Jesus and his process is that he calls her. What does he do with this lady? He calls her to him. He calls her to him. As is often the case, when Jesus enters the community, one would find him teaching at the local synagogue. And he teaches and sees a woman, and he says, please come here. Now, she had a choice. She could say, yeah, no thanks. I don't like crowds. I don't like being in front of crowds. I don't mind being in a crowd, but don't point me out in the crowd. How many of you are that way? Right? Okay. If Jesus says come, you still have a choice, but you're going to miss out on something. And so he calls her to him. Biblical scholar Diane Chen writes, Instead of leaving the woman hidden in the back of the room, Jesus summons her forward. If her shameful condition is publicly condemned, then her restoration must be publicly witnessed. Because here's what was thought in those days. In the synagogue, in the community of faith, in the Jewish culture, and even in the pagan cultures, if you were sick or diseased, then there was something in your life that it caused you to be that way. And there may be cases where that is true. For instance, if I am sleeping around willy-nilly with anybody under the sun and I catch a disease that way, whose fault is it? And what is the consequence of that action? So there are consequences for certain actions that do play out. But not every disease is because somebody has done something wrong and God has cocked his punishment pistol and goes, zap, you got the disease. Now zap, I'm going to get you. And zap. But that was what was thought. That if somebody was crippled, they were being punished. If someone had a disease, if someone was fill in the blank, then it was because God was punishing you. And so what would happen in society... For those people if you thought God was punishing someone for something in their lives would you treat them good as or would you treat them bad now you would say because you've been a part of North Main long enough I'm gonna treat them good I love people no matter what condition they're in but if the cultural norm and the community of faith's norm was to reject and to blame her do you catch what's going on here? So why would she even have the audacity to step into the synagogue in a community that had probably, more than likely, had rejected her? There are places and times for healing. It's not Sunday morning. Excuse me, Sabbath day was Saturday for the Jews. It's not Saturday morning in synagogue worship. Come back at another time, please. But Jesus has compassion as he always does and he sees her sees her on the sabbath while he's teaching and instead of continuing with business as usual he stops what he's doing he's willing to be interrupted even though she wasn't trying to interrupt he was willing to see her she was willing to be there and he sees this as a divine moment 
And for her, it will be. Because he says, come here, please. Whereas the religious leaders who should have been doing that said, stay away. Stay away. So his calling, Jesus' calling, is imperative for healing. Because you can reject the calling. You can say, no, thanks, I'm good over here. She could have said, oh, he pointed me out. I need to get out of here as quick as possible. I probably even shouldn't be here because they don't like it when I show up. So she comes forward. He says, woman, you are healed of your sickness. And then he touches her. And then she does what? She stands up. I'm guessing she's stretching. She's, she's probably looking around from a different perspective than she's ever looked at in 18 years. I didn't realize I was this tall. She's probably thinking to herself, right? I didn't realize this is what the world looks like. For, oh, praise God! Nothing was going to steal that joy from her in that moment. Jesus called her. He touched her. He gave her something that probably had never happened in a long time. As someone just, come here, let me, it's okay. Let me touch your back. Let me touch your hand. You remember a few weeks ago I talked about physical touch? We are created as social and communal beings. God did not create us to be alone. It is not good for man to be alone. Outside of the context of marriage, when God says this in Genesis 2, it is not good for man to be alone, that word for man, which is ha-adam in Hebrew, actually can mean humankind or it can mean physically male. But in that context... It's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for any of us to be alone. And so what he does is he makes a counterpart out of the flesh and bone of Adam to complete him in a way that no other creature on earth could. We are created to be in community and in fellowship. The sad reality is the community and fellowship that oftentimes we're a part of outside of this contact is, context is very dysfunctional, painful, and, and, and broken. The other sad reality is that in this context, it can become that way when we allow the enemy into this space. I don't know what baggage you carried in here today. I don't know what things are connected to you, be it anger, frustration, unforgiveness, resentment, any number of things that you might have weighing on you that are holding sway over you, that have control over you, and you're being held down like this. You are bent over spiritually, emotionally, mentally. And there is a Jesus who says, come here, I want to talk to you. I want to see you. There's a Jesus who calls you. And says, let me heal your wounds. You who are heavy burdened, let me show you what rest truly is. Come to me, you who are weary, and I'll give you rest. And then when we come close, and we submit to that calling, he, he, he touches us. And that touch is a rest, restoration touch, a restoring touch, a delivering touch that helps us to stand up, to breathe in our lungs that had been so compressed by the weight of bending over in a way that we've not been able to breathe for a while. To take into ourselves the breath of life 
to be unencumbered by the burdens of what we would consider our current realities, but there is a hope beyond our current reality that is greater than anything we can imagine. He's the one who says, let me take your burdens and then I'll give you mine because mine is easy and light. And he touches us when we most need a touch. He touches us when we feel like we're untouchable. That we are disgusting, we're despicable. And he said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. You were created in my Father's image. And I want to show you the glorious nature of a restored image. I want to show you what it's like to be in a place where you can stand up when everybody else is trying to push you down or your circumstances are pushing you down or your illness is pushing you down. I want to show you freedom. I want to give you life abundant. And no, 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 it's not going to be easy. Because you're going to have people like a synagogue leader who's going to be barking orders at you. You're going to have people in the world, in your own life, who love you, but don't know the ways and the purposes of God that are going to be pointing fingers and accusations at you. But I'm good. Let me show you what I have to offer you. Which is what leads into what happens next. He calls her. He touches her. She is healed. She praises God. And then he defends her. He defends her. Because you see what the synagogue leader is doing. There are six days of the week for working, he says. To the whole crowd. Come on those days to be healed and not on the Sabbath. You know what's interesting is Jesus often healed on the Sabbath. What better day of the week to set someone free from the bondage of sickness and death and sin than the day when the community of faith has gathered to worship the God of all gods. Before God and all other witnesses, the miracle in the hand of God comes and breaks the chains of bondage. But religious leaders, sadly, political leaders, many leaders who have been given a position of authority when not used to glorify God, wield it for their own selfish purposes. And when that happens, it becomes a corrupt institution. And when it becomes corrupt, it takes on the ways of man and the world. And when that happens, it doesn't look any different than the rest of the world. In the synagogue Jesus was in on that day, was modeling the culture of the world and not the culture of the kingdom of God. And so when the religious leader, religious leader spoke up and condemned not only Jesus and the rest of the crowd and this specific woman who specifically came on that day and was specifically healed by Jesus, Jesus pipes up and says, no, 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 not on my watch. Mm -mm. You hypocrites! Each of you works on the Sabbath day. Is it more important to take care of your ox or your donkey? And I've set a woman free. What is wrong with you? Can you imagine how incensed the Son of God must have been in that moment? And all of the other audience there, the community of faith, watching what's going to happen right now. How is this going to play out? Jesus stands in the gap for you and for me. When we step into His will and His purposes and receive Jesus as Lord and Savior of our life, and He imparts to us His Holy Spirit to take residence in us, when we encounter difficult times, guess where He is? 
We don't feel him often around us. We don't see him or his hand at work around us. Do you know where he is? He's in the midst of the battle with us. Standing in the gap. Fighting for us. Advocating to the Father. Interceding in ways that we cannot see or comprehend because he loves us. I think of God in the Old Testament encouraging the Israelites as they're coming into the promised land. He tells them, I'm going to go into battle ahead of you. I'm going to go into the battle ahead of you. Don't worry. We got this. You continue to follow my lead. That's why I'm going ahead of you so you know where to go and what to do when you get there. Okay? You remember when Joshua enters, the, getting ready to enter the promised land, and he sees the angel of the Lord? And Joshua says, are you for us or against us? And he says, neither. Because he knows that even God's people are prone to fall away and to do their own things in their own ways. See, we are to be for him, and not the other way around. But I think there's something interesting if you read Genesis to Revelation. God is for those who are called by his name. He pursues them relentlessly. He steps out of eternity and into time to show the extent of his love by offering Jesus as the perfect sacrifice who then takes away the sin of the world and he welcomes us into that union with him as we mentioned earlier during our communion service. Will you drink of the cup and partake of the body of Christ? Or will you sit on the outside as a spectator, not willing to be a part of what he's called us into? In one fell swoop, Jesus puts everything into perspective in this scenario in Luke 13. By healing this woman, many things are brought to the surface within the religious community. How Interesting it would be if Jesus were to step into the context of any of our churches in America on any given Sunday, what would first off he find and secondly, what would he do? Jesus puts everything into perspective. He heals this woman, things are brought to the surface, forced to look at their own hypocrisy, Jesus's actions and words shame the religious leaders, not because he's trying to take a dig at them, but because he's speaking truth. And when you speak truth in love, even, it points out what is not in alignment with it, and it can be offensive. You don't have to make the truth offensive for it to be offensive. Even speaking it in love can come across in a way that makes you kind of squirm a little bit if you're not in alignment with that truth. The stark contrast of legalism and freedom is seen by all in the synagogue that day, and in this particular instance, one can see that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You can't deny it. One final point before we close by Fred Craddock. He says, the house is divided. Jesus' adversaries are put to shame and all of the people rejoice, we are told in this passage. Such is the effect of the presence of Jesus and of a sign of the inbreaking of God's reign over the forces of evil and Satan himself. The peace of the way that things have always been is shattered by word and deed of Jesus. If, if helping a stooped woman creates a crisis, then crisis it must be. And I think the church in America needs a crisis in order to wake it up to the reality of the living, breathing God of all creation to bring us back to kneel at the cross and to say, God, forgive us. Give us a sense of purpose again and show us what we should be doing. And he's like, I already have. Follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. I'll show you how to set captives free. 
to heal the sick, raise the dead, to make the blind see and the deaf hear. I'm seeing a cessationist movement taking a rise in our day and age. There's a cessation, or there was just a cessationist conference. And what is cessationist, Brandon? It is where there's a belief that the miracles, the healings, and the hand of God does not work the way that it did in the first century church, that that stuff died off, and it doesn't exist anymore. And so there's now conferences. There's a movie coming out called The Cessationist Movie. I just saw that recently. I'm like, the enemy will find his way in in any way to destroy what God is trying to do. Do you know the biggest issue in the early church? In many regards, wasn't that they didn't meet together, but what started creeping into the early church, and you can read this in Paul's writings and other writings of the New Testament, is unbelief started to creep in. And where there is unbelief, it stifles the move of God. Not because he is any less powerful, but because he will not be where he is not welcomed. Praise the Lord up there. As our worship team comes forward to close us out, I guess the question I want to leave you with or ask you this morning is <clears throat> who are you in this story? Are you in the crowd around the synagogue walls listening to the message of Jesus? Are you a spectator just wondering, okay, what's going to happen next? Are you the woman who's burdened with either physical sickness this morning? Are you burdened with mental, emotional sickness, spiritual? Maybe you've spiritually been over because you've not been set free. Are you the woman in the story? Are you the religious leader in the story? There's a way to do things and you're doing it wrong. See, Jesus takes all of our preconceived notions and blows them out of the water. He will never contradict God's word, but he will not follow men's rules. And the question is, are you following men's rules or God's word? Are we in the synagogue as the leader, are we the woman, are we the spectator this morning? Kindness does the right thing no matter the situation. Regardless of the supposed rules and regulations of society, following God's rules and standards would never keep us from extending love and helping those in need. And just like Jesus is healing this woman on the Sabbath who had been crippled for 18 years, we too should go beyond our uncomfortableness, our pride, our unwillingness to share the love of God by assisting those who have been created in the image of God to go to the foot of the cross where all things change for the better. True kindness knows no bounds. This morning, my challenge to you, as I mentioned earlier, is to do an act of kindness this week. But my other challenge immediately right now is to ask yourself, who am I and what am I doing? Am I just following a set of man-made rules and structures or am I truly following the Word of God, the written and the living Word? Am I fully surrendered? Or do I just have one foot in and the other foot in the world? Where am I? Where am I in all of this? Maybe I am so in that I'm out. And what I mean by that is I'm so into the religious structure that I'm out of the will of God because what I've done is I made a God of the rules instead of the rule maker. So who are you? Where are you? You need to be the woman who was willing to come forward at Jesus' calling. You need to be the woman who was touched and the woman who was set free. And you need to be able to stand and shout, praise God. Praise God. Our altars are open. If you were 
If you have not come to faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life, I'm asking you today to make that commitment of faith. And what that means is this, is you have decided to quit living life your way and to surrender your life and live it God's way. You may not know fully what that means yet, because this church thing is new to you, this Christian faith name uh, thing is, is new, but it starts with one step, the calling of Christ who says, come to me. That's the first step in the process. And then the rest is learning to follow him each and every step of the way. If that's you, there will be someone willing to pray with you this morning and, and, and help you start that walk of faith fully and completely. And let me tell you, you're not going to do it perfectly. You're just not. Once you step into a relationship with Christ fully and completely, it's a learning curve, and it will continue to be a learning curve till the day you die. When all things will be made completely new. You come to my right, your left, you can pray over here. <clears throat> if this message has hit you in a way to help you realize some things about yourself, maybe baggage you've been carrying you need to get rid of so that you can walk in an upright fashion, somebody would be willing to pray with you. If you don't want to be prayed with, but you want to pray alone, you come to my left, your right. But please don't leave today without allowing something to have transformed and shaped you by the message of God's word today. Let's pray. Lord, we surrender to you. Heart, soul, mind, body, spirit, because that's how much we love you. We don't know every answer to every question or every situation that happens in life, but God, we do know the truth that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through Jesus Christ. And so, as we make that step towards you, as you've already called us, Touch us, lift us up, heal us physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, relationally. Give us hope and a future, I pray, dear Jesus. It's in your son's name we pray, amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.